Hello, and welcome back to The Postscript, a podcast about films where the discourse ended with an ellipsis rather than a period. I'm Chris Hall. I'm Sebastian. And I'm Mateo. And on this podcast, we will be reassessing films of recent memory where the discourse was left unsettled. We will try to provide more definitive takes on films that generated a lot of buzz upon release, but the reputations have since become a bit murky. Movies that make you ask, where are they now? Last week, we discussed the once heavily anticipated sequel, Incredibles 2, which I want to say, I just found out today, it's not The Incredibles 2. The first movie was The Incredibles. They they they, they pulled a Sean Parker. Pixar said, drop the the. It's just Incredibles 2, which I, did, <laughs> I just had to share. They didn't notice that. Right? Drop the the, just Facebook. It's cleaner. On that pod, we we all pretty much agreed that while the you know while the movie suffers a little bit from an excess of ideas, there's still a lot to love, and it definitely wasn't deserving of of some of the hate it received uh, back in 2018. Mm. This week, we will be talking about our first best picture winner on the pod, Alejandro G. Inarritu's 2014 film Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's ambitious. The film follows Riggin Thompson, what a name, a faded Hollywood actor played by Michael Keaton, who's best known for playing a superhero known as Birdman as he struggles to mount an ambitious Broadway production that he hopes will revive his career. Let's start here. The movie, as you probably already know, was a critical success. Got a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 87% on Metacritic. And while it may not have been, you know, the blockbuster that Incredibles 2 or even Gravity was, on just a $17 million budget, it grossed $103 million, which is... That's crazy. (laughs) I wouldn't get that. Which yeah. is, uh, to clear any ambiguity, is very much so a financial success. And, yeah. uh, and like, especially in 2023, like, I mean, anytime a talkie drama for adults makes over $100 million, like, we should be backflipping. Like, that is, mm-hmm. even if you don't like a movie, we rejoice. And that actually, as I'm saying it out loud in your reaction, that is kind of crazy. This movie made so over strange. 100 mil. The movie was nominated for nine Oscars, and it won four. Four big ones. Maybe the four biggest ones. It won Best Directing, uh, which Inaritu would win the following year for The Revenant. And this was actually the third time ever that a director won the Oscar for Best Directing in back-to-back years. It's a quick detour, a little trivia moment. What were the other two times? I'm not expecting you guys to know the films and the director, but I would love to know if you guys could just pull out the director. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig deep here. And and say like, I don't know why, but I I, I want to say Fred Zinneman, who like okay. directed like High Noon and a bunch of other like pretty well received movies in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, couple best picture winners in there. Definitely, okay. definitely the a, a guy the Oscars loved. I mean, I don't think I'd be good at this. My Oscar knowledge stopped beyond the 21st century. <laughs> that's so. that's valid. Okay. Uh the first was John Ford. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> For the, the grapes of, for the Grapes of Wrath in 1940 and How Green Was My Valley in 1941. And then mm. Joseph Mankiewicz for A Letter to Three Wives in 1949. I mean, where were you guys? You know, it's like, where? <laughs> that's all. That, when's, when's the A Letter to Three Wives postscript podcast? Uh, and then All About Eve in 1950. So, you know, a little, a little trivia. Never heard I of it. I will say, I don't, I don't want to get it too ahead of ourselves, but 
how green was my valley postscript would kind of be amazing. <laughs> my, my, Mateo's pining for, for a how green is my valley postscript. We'll just, uh, and for those going, the freak is he talking about? That was the movie that beat Citizen Kane in 1941. So that, <laughs> as much as that movie bangs, that is its reputation like that, you know? So yeah. Moving on from that, Birdman also won Best Cinematography and was the second in uh, DP Emmanuel Lubezki's three-peat, like we mentioned on the Gravity podcast, the three-peat, The Game with Gravity. Then he won for Birdman the next year, and then they ended with The Revenant the next year, his another collaboration with Inaritu. The film also won Best Original Screenplay, which is something I know we will return to in conversation, likely in the postgame, especially for a film that's known for its visual components more than anything else. And lastly, Birdman took home the big award of the night, Best Picture. But, <laughs> as with all films on, on this podcast, there is a comma, but quality aside, this film very much so, it had a gimmick, right? Because this film was shot to appear as if it was being filmed in one continuous take. All the cuts were hidden in some way, uh, you know, akin to Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Uh, 1941, or uh, in more recent memory, and this movie came out after Birdman, like Sam Mendes' uh, 1917. Because of this filmmaking style, even with all the praise it received in the moment, there was still a slight air, even back in 2015, there was a slight air of, like, is this movie really good, or are we all just being seduced by this, like, runner? Because pulling something like that off is undeniably impressive, but similar to 1917, a few years later, there was this concern that maybe we were valuing the process over the product, right? And to this day, that stigma associated with the film definitely remains and has only grown. And while there are still people who very much so do like love and respect the film, I mean, the film still has like a 4.0 on Letterboxd, right? There are people who who are just like, like I see through the lies of the Jedi. Like I see, like I, I'm not falling for the gimmick. Like this thing is style over substance, like et cetera, et cetera. And, and similar to Gravity, it wasn't on many end of decade lists either. So all of this is why we're asking ourselves, like is Birdman truly a feat of filmmaking and you know, a rich text with meaningful cinematography? Or was it just flashy camera work and kind of just an ultimately ephemeral piece of filmmaking? With that being said, I'm going to throw it to you guys. Where were you guys at in 2015? Like, do you have memories of, of the discourse surrounding this film? Did you guys see it in 2015 at the time? Like, did you see it in theaters? What was going on back then? So I did see this in theaters. Okay. And it might have been like one of the few kind of like Oscar contenders that I saw in theaters at the time. Right. And I I was very impressed by the one but... Mm -hmm. What always sat with what sat with me, I think, more about the film was kind of its dialogue and the style. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I might be wrong about this, but I just remember it being a very kind of chattery movie with dialogue really kind of like peppered in almost to give the movie zest. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. movies that pull that off really well always impress me because I think it's like the easiest way to make a movie really annoying. <laughs> so when it's not annoying and when you make it work, that's that kind of sits with me. So I I'm excited to to go back to it because of that. I want I want to see how much of that actually works. Right, right. And I wonder if um just to add on real quick to what you said, uh, I I wonder if we kind of respond to it like we did with Gravity, where we were like, you know, it, it's remembered for again for so many of the visual components, but maybe we're like, oh, like this is like 
this script is a lot better than I remember, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's the thing maybe that kind of fell through the cracks a bit. But Seb, what are you thinking? I mean, I didn't see it in theaters. Mm-hmm. And like around the time, because what, 2015 me was 16. So my parents weren't contentious, but they were more like cautious with radar films. I'm so sure. I'm sure. I, I was, uh, you know, I think Logan was like one of my first big dubs going to the theater and seeing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't get to see it in theaters, but I, I do remember the conversation that was around the film around the time. I and mean, everyone was just talking about the winner. They were over they were pretty impressed by it back then. I remember people saying that like the film is good beyond it. And but I mm-hmm. felt like very quickly after the film released, there was like kind of a heel turn that took that happened. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't even remember exactly what that conversation shifted from it's a good movie but it has these flaws i can't remember what the flaws were to be honest i remember not being the biggest fan i remember saying of being one of like the birdman is overrated crowd Uh, (laughs) and i can't remember why (laughs) i i i'm very excited going into this because there's it's genuinely almost like a new experience i remember it's like the actors more than anything being strong yes Uh, but screenplay, once again, like you mentioned, I I just have no idea like what <laughs> what that's going to entail, what that experience is going to be like. I, I I mean, it should be good, but like right, that's really funny. I I love it. You were just like like a physical manifestation of like uh, for this movie, like what this podcast is. It's like I have mixed feelings, but I don't know why. Like that, yeah. that, that, yeah. that yeah. is so perfect. And I, I should mention though, over time, I I was like just started bumping up the score on letterbox from like a, <laughs> started at a, at a six out of 10 went to a seven. I think I was sitting at an eight already, but yet we're still bringing it on here because there's still that. Yeah. But there's always just right. like, right. For some reason people have problems and, but it's like vague. It's so big. <laughs> no. And I think that might be when a movie undergoes huge success when anything undergoes huge success and praise like like there will always be people who want to kind of take it down a peg like that's always seems like a, like a natural reaction it's like but but does it deserve all this and, and it will kind of undergo heightened scrutiny right and for something like this and like we've already touched on a little bit again this is such an audacious film and it's so in your face that it, it's not hard to just like pick one of its ingredients maybe out of a hat and be like this was too much like or this wasn't for me or, like this was this was vain like this was that's it's very easy to kind of just pin the tail on the donkey in a movie like this and be like nah th- this actually isn't that good you know what does what does surprise me is if you look at what it beat out for best picture that year the competition is not as deep it's not as like hefty as i expected it to be it, it, right it kind of is an off year like you look at this like the other nominees you have american sniper right uh boyhood just Brandy to interject Pest. real quick sorry that that brings me into what my original experience with the movie was I mean, it's back in 2015, so I hadn't seen it in theaters. I hadn't seen it before the Oscars, right? But I re- I vividly remember being really, really fascinated with Boyhood. I hadn't even seen that either. But just the concept of it, a, a, another film with its own gimmick. And we will certainly talk about it on this podcast at some point. Because that was the film with the whole, like, oh, it filmed with the same cast over 12 years. All, you know, all, like, what a... Just like all the effort it took. And that just blew 15-year-old me's mind, right? <laughs> like, and from what I remember, Boyhood 
had a lot of juice in the Oscar. Yeah, race. I think like, people expected that one to win. No, exactly. That was like, the, the favorite. Exactly. Like from what I remember, that was the front runner for a lot of stretches. And like a lot of Oscar races, it kind of it went from, oh, this is going to win to, oh, now it's quietly a two horse race. And Birdman got a lost seam at the end. And again, even though I hadn't seen either film, I remember being like genuinely salty when, when Birdman won Best Picture and yeah. Best Directing. Like I just for some reason felt so bad for like Richard Linklater, like pouring 12 years into boyhood. And then just getting robbed by the bird movie. Like, I was like, come on, guys. Like, I was just like so sympathetic to Boyd for some reason, even though I had no actual skin in the game. I hadn't seen either film, but I, that, that's what I remember most at first about the movie. But I did eventually watch Birdman that summer in a like, in, in a lowercase m marathon that I had by myself. It was like, again, weirdly a core memory for me. I remember one week in the summer, like, I guess in summer of 2015, I watched one film a night for like four nights straight, which is fairly standard practice for people like us now. But back then I was like, somebody call Guinness. Like this is like, we are, <laughs> history is being made right now. Like this is, this is unheard of. And, and for those curious, um, the films were, uh, they were all Oscar films from the previous year. It was Birdman, Whiplash, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Steve Jobs. Pretty good streak. Pretty good streak in which two of those, Whiplash and Grand Budapest, were also up for Best Picture that year. And what was the rest of that list, Mateo? What else was up for Best yeah, Picture? Yeah, so I think the two that kind of stand out the most are Grand Budapest and Whiplash. Like, I think right. those are the ones that, like, if you ask people nowadays, like, what some of their favorite movies are, you could very easily hear those two. But, like, mm -hmm. the other ones, it's like American Sniper, Boyhood, Imitation Game, Selma, <laughs> Theory of Everything. Oh. Not really not really like the heaviest hitters nowadays right. so i think i don't know like what makes people so indignant at birdman because mm -hmm. it's not like it wasn't like coming up against this like kind of crazy competition to beat out for best picture unless you're really like a whiplash or a grand budapest truther which mm -hmm. i am not for either one of those films like i you're in the minority mateo I, I, I know <laughs> I, I understand that i understand that for me it's not really like a I don't really understand what there is to be upset about. Like, mm -hmm. but, but I don't know. I, I guess that's kind of why I, I want to, I'm so curious to watch it again, you know? Right. No, cause it, cause in retrospect, it's like, yeah, a, a lot of folks probably would choose probably Whiplash or Grand Budapest if we had like a retrospective Oscars kind of thing. Birdman did not beat Citizen Kane, right? Like, yeah. like it wasn't, it's not like Birdman beat like Moonlight or, or Mad Max Fury Road or one of these films that dominated these end of decade lists, right? Whiplash is in my top 10 of the 21st century. So that, for me, that's like, fair. That's no, I mean, personally, I, I as of this moment in time, I, I prefer Whiplash over Birdman, but I also haven't seen Birdman since that that epic summer night, you know, back in back in 2015. And again, I, I really don't have much more meaningful analysis other than I. It was, I felt like it was hard not to be impressed by it. It felt, you know, pretty undeniable. Um, but a lot of time has passed since then, right? Uh, I, I, I want to speculate. I, I, I love speculating. I want to speculate a little bit about why this movie maybe doesn't have the same amount of love. And specifically, you, you talked about how, like, people might just pick out an ingredient and say they don't like it. Mm -hmm. I think the movie is, like, from what I remember, the movie is very it's very centered around like kind of like a very sort of like specific like niche like mm. art community because it's about like it's about like stage players and like they're not kind of like they're they're going for this very sort of like literary 
high culture kind of vibe, which I think that sort of dialogue and that sort of community is something that can very easily annoy people when you're right. like watching those people work in a movie, like, oh, these are all snobs. Like, I don't care about these. <laughs> but I really like movies about people like that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting so excited to watch this movie again. Let's go. I was just about to say, I mean, when Chris was describing the description for the film, I was like, this sounds like absolute Sevcore to me. Like, I would be all <laughs> just like you were saying, Mateo. Like, this sounds like the kind of movie I'd be all over. Um, mm-hmm. I, my theory for why I didn't enjoy it as much is I just watched it at the wrong time. Like, I wasn't the right age to mm-hmm. be like really like soaking in these themes and the message that the film was trying to like tell. I don't think I was my brain was mature enough yet. <laughs> and uh, now as a 24 year old, oh, it's you know I understand everything. I'm just kidding. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I do think though I am in a better spot to probably digest the film. And you know, I think the timing is going to be very interesting to watch this. I can't believe we haven't brought this up, but this movie is about an actor whose whole legacy is kind of defined by playing a superhero character. And in this era of like just insane superhero movie burnout, like yeah. I wonder how much more timely this is going to feel than, you know, in, in like 2014, 2015, when like people were like lining up to see Age of Ultron, like <laughs> filling up theaters. That's going to be, it's going to be an interesting to see how that legacy plays into how this movie, how we're going to remember this movie now with all the, all this baggage that is associated with superhero movies now. Even at the time, back in 2015, there was already the metatextual reading with Michael Keaton in the in the lead role, who his iconic role like was Batman, and you know he, he's had a good career outside of that. But even when first discussing the film and and, and talks to join it, like he asked Enrico, he was like, "Are you making fun of me in this movie? Like, is this like, it was like the the euphoria? Like, is this play about us? Like, is yeah. that yeah, like?" But then once he talked about it with Enrico more, uh, he he understood the vision more, even though obviously they're the extra reading still applies very much. I remember you were talking about how the movie, it, it kind of has niche subject matter a little bit. And again, that's just like catnip for people who want to throw just like, oh, like just like pulling up from 30 people, like, oh, self-absorbed this movie. It's like so <laughs> easy just to like, especially when it's like a one or be like, oh, this movie's just up its own butt. I've definitely heard that a little bit with Inaritu kind of in general. But this movie it is like, it was about things that he, like Inaritu himself had lived through and was like currently living through in a lot of ways, you know? He'd only made like very grim dramas up until this point, but he was like, this thing has to be funny and self-irreverent or else it very much so will appear like self-absorbed, like, woe is me, like, look at my plight. And, and I think that is ultimately why the movie probably had the success it did and maybe that the success it will have with us and when it comes to like the one or itself i just love this one quote so much so emmanuel lubeski is the cinematographer and it is said after reading the script lubeski was worried that anaritu would he was worried that anaritu would offer him the job since berman quote had all the elements of a movie that i did not want to do at all It was a comedy, it was studio work, and it had long takes. And he was like, freak this. But again, after talking with Inaritu, he was like, oh, no, I get it. Like, I'm all in. Because he just said he wanted to, quote, submerge the protagonist in an inescapable reality and take the audience with them. 
uh, part of Lubezki's concern was that there were no reference films. It's like Rope does is constructed in a similar way, but even then, that was a chamber piece. And so again, like this thing had to be so heavily, heavily rehearsed, like heavily blueprinted. And that was really fascinating too, because I read that the editors of the film, there were two editors for it. They were both involved like in pre-production from the get-go, because if you think about it, with a movie like this one, like there aren't many editing decisions to really be made in post. Because it's like, when it's just a bunch of long takes, it's like, it's kind of already laid how the film's cut. You're almost just choosing yeah. which preferred takes at that point. So it has to be a movie that like, you're watching your mind before the day one of shooting, you know? Like, it's yeah. it's not a movie where you go, oh, we'll figure it out on the day. It's like, you know, like it's down to the steps that the actors take. It had to all be choreographed. I don't think they would put this much effort into something that they wanted to make because like, wouldn't it be cool if we did a one But again, we'll see if that reads through, like, yeah. intention's great but we'll see if that ultimately comes through I, I i know like and we're getting ourselves like pumped up to watch this again but i do want to <laughs> ask like do you think there are any potential like pratfalls like traps that this movie mm. could fall into on the rewatch like anything well, that i'll throw that back in your face do you think there are <laughs> i like I, I i think the one thing that i'm worried about is i wonder how how you get that look to really be good because like obviously mm. the the camera movement you know you're gonna have that very meticulously staged and done but like just the lighting i feel like that is so difficult to do well mm. for mm. a movie like this and mm. i feel like the visual element can really go a long way to making this movie either feel like very kind of like muddy and artificial or mm -hmm. feel real and i think the cinematography element i feel like of just the the basic stuff, not not the the elaborate oneer, but just the simple simple basics. I wonder that that has to be so hard to pull off in a movie like this. The thing that was coming to my mind was just like, can you make kind of the staging of the actors feel realistic and like genuine? Mm -hmm. When when you think about you know the before trilogy and like everyone just talks about how well those scenes are staged, where it just it all feels very natural. Exactly. Will it feel that way in this in this film? Like, or will it just kind of feel like almost overly directed? I, I think that if I if I go in with the intention of trying to enjoy the film rather than trying to beat it, because I think there's a lot of people who watch this film thinking like, I know better than the film. I know the tricks that it's trying to play on me. Mm -hmm. Let me outthink it or outsmart it. Even though if you go in with that you know mindset, you've already lost. Yeah, and yes. like, yeah. I, I, most of the time you should just go in and just be like this is the intent of being a positive experience I want the, the film to try and right. you, know, you know touch me in some kind of way or I, I have a laugh I cry something whatever you know the film wants to do to me I'm gonna allow it to do to me so I that's kind of how I'm you know going into this one right that was right. really beautiful yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. really nice well, let's go yeah you. And, and you're right this is a movie that like it could be very easy to have cinema sins brain on it be like oh that was a cut no i saw that cut it's like <laughs> oh, it's, come on man it's like are you really gonna knock a star off because you saw that one cut like so being able to see the forest for the trees on a movie like this does feel important and i will say at the very least i'm i'm really excited the, for the performances in the movie for, like this yes. is a really really fun cast which you were talking about before i mean we got michael keaton we got edward norton emma stone zach alfanakis andre riseborough amy ryan naomi watts like there's a world where like in the post game of this podcast we we realized this was like 
the best performance of the decade for like four or five different actors in this thing. You know, it's like, you know what I'm saying? One of, if not the worst non best picture blunders from the Oscars in this decade, or maybe even this century was exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. Aside from Brad Pitt and Moneyball, Michael Keaton not winning best actor in 2014 is such is just such a fumble like there was nothing more heartbreaking than seeing Michael Keaton like put away his speech note cards as Eddie Redmayne took the stage to us accept his Oscar like golly like uh, one for of the, the theory ultimate, of everything what yeah for the theory of everything one of the ultimate that guy has an Oscar was Eddie Redmayne in 2014 winning for the theory of everything. Like it was, that win was on such a silver platter for Michael Keaton because they clearly loved the movie and it was an, it was such an it's time Oscar as well. Like it wasn't rocket science. Like, this is a pre rewatch conversation. It's like, we know, we're we going to leave being like, yeah, he deserved it. Like, I'm sure yeah. we will be saying that. We don't need to watch rewatch theory of everything to know that. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think there will be a theory of everything postscript pod. I'm so sorry to all the, Theory of everything stands out there. That being said, <laughs> a lot a lot of fun actors in this movie. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I hope the movie has the magic that I that I want it to have. I, I you know this is a movie that I I, I believe like, in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we 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 believe in Birdman. Uh, I'll be I'll be wearing like I'm a, I'm gonna make some like Michael Keaton should have won the Oscar shirt and, and, and just wear that guy around LA. And also, now that I think about it, were there this kind of because oneers in recent years have become a lot more trendy. Was this the movie that kind of set that in motion? I will say, a hundred percent. I'm looking at the list one billion percent. Yeah. Wait, the list of what? Of of films that were shot in one take. After, oh. It goes way up after 2014. Oh, oh really? Oh, okay. That I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, even me. I, I mean, I I was. Doing a, my first short film at University of Florida was a was a one right so like, right. I was I thinking see. about Birdman at the time, so I, well, I shoot. That's just the thing. It, it, yeah, so it does have a legacy to, yeah. to an extent. I, there is a debate as well, which is what kind of makes it interesting for us to. There is a mystery to this film that I'm, I'm excited to explore. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Well, with that being said, let's give it the rewatch. All right. Unfortunately, Screen Slaver does not await. We can't say that this time, but. Uh, well, we believe in Birdman is but, but we, we believe in Birdman. All righty. Uh, see you guys on the other side. Music. He's a Hollywood clown in a Lyco bird suit. Yes, he is. But he's going out on that stage and risking everything. This is about being respected and validated. Remember, that's what you told me. That's how you got me into this shit. I got a chance to do something right. I got to take it. Let's go back one more time and show them what we're capable of. There you go, you mother... And we're back. Uh, we just finished our viewing of um, Regan Thompson's What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. <laughs> um, <laughs> reviews coming for that uh, after, after this pod. Uh, but, but no, okay, so up until this point, in these post games, like, us three have been operating in almost complete, like, like just unanimity. We've seen eye to eye on on most points so far, but we all knew deep down eventually that would no longer be the case for, for all, all movies <laughs> and from the brief discussions us three have had outside this pod it, it seems that day is upon us right so i, I have opinions myself I, i'm going to start as more of a more of a moderator for this movie for, for the sake of of getting to the root of this thing right so with that being said seb why don't you kick us off with this your your general thoughts and takeaways 
post rewatch. All right. Well, I had a cautious outlook on this film going in. I, I was a little concerned. Um, yeah, like 20 minutes going in, like I was just like starting to feel the, the, the jitters a little bit, you know? <laughs> and I, I found it to be pretty tremendous. Let's, I, I, let's I, go. From, from the moment it starts off, there's almost kind of like this like whiplash, like opening script with like, you know, the quotes and, uh, you know, the title reveal. Uh, there's like a really, I mean, the, the score was pretty uh, jarring to me. I, I had completely forgotten what that, you know, the music mm. was going to be like in this film. And it, and it starts right off the bat and doesn't really let up throughout the film. I found there to be a lot of depth and a lot of richness and subtext to almost every scene that was going on in the film. And I, I saw the film tackling identity crisis, uh, family drama, a lot of different Hollywood tropes. Uh, like, what does it take to be uh, a creative versus a critic? Oh, and a lot of films have, have tackled these things, but I think that there is a, a fine-tuned balance to find in the gray area where you're not preaching, you're just exploring. And so this is where I found that film to tell that line beautifully. Uh, I, I just had a great time with the balance of humor and drama. The camera is a character throughout the film. And I, I enjoyed that it would change between like this very handheld uh, version of itself. And then there's like very smooth cinematic version as well, especially in transitions between uh, the days. I mean, I'm going on and on rambling, but I just found there to be so much to talk about and enjoy and respect that, you know, I, by the end of the movie, I was just like, what, what a clean two hours. Like, I was like, what a great time. I just, had. <laughs> I just it flew by for me. Uh, I, I love the, the, the camera as a character. That's a great read for sure. But uh, Mateo, what do you, I mean, hit his, <laughs> hit okay. So I, I do want to, I do want to preface this by saying that, I know for the audience that listening at home, you listen to the first half and then you hear a little bit of music and then you just go right into the second half. For us, you know, I spent two days between the beginning of the po of the pregame and the postgame. So time has passed. I sat down, I watched the movie for two hours and my feelings have changed a little bit. So <laughs> I, I want to start off by saying I did not, I didn't hate the movie. It was not a bad time. I, it was enjoyable, but on this rewatch, I found there to be a lot of glaring, glaring flaws that really oftentimes had me rolling my eyes, getting frustrated. I, I want to, I want to say specifically with the script, I think mm -hmm. I don't have, I didn't have a problem with the cast. I didn't have a problem with Inyaritu's direction of the actors. Even the oneer I think is on a technical level masterful, but mm -hmm that the script, particularly the dialogue, I found to ring so false so oh, much of the time. Whoa. I, I just think like the the way that it like sets up like its character relationships is like so cliche. I, I don't know. Like I think it's just it just goes for the easiest it, it goes for the easiest way to establish uh, a character's relationship with somebody else. So like I, and I think, you know, you, you can look this up, but I think Emma Stone's, she was nominated for this movie, was she not? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the monologue that plays for the Oscar reel when they <laughs> have that. Right. It, it, it has, she's like, just like monologuing about how 
you know, Michael Keaton's character has become irrelevant. And she starts, she goes on a rant where she says, you know, you hate bloggers, you mock Twitter, you don't even have a Facebook page. It dates the movie and it just feels, it felt false to me. Like, I don't see these characters, like, I think the way that it sets up the adversarial relation between critic and actor mm -hmm. to be like, it doesn't feel real to me. Like, I don't, I don't think of critics like saying I'm going to kill your play before it even <laughs> comes out. Like that's just not a, that's not a relation that feels authentic to me. And I, I think those unreal moments of dialogue, they feel so fake. They don't feel earned to me. They just feel false. They feel like this is just a worldview that Inuritu has that just does not correspond with reality. And mm -hmm. that was just, it was too jarring for me. And it, it it gave me very mixed feelings. I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but I, no, no, no. I'm just that, trying that... to I'm trying to work through it. You know, live on air, I'm working through my feelings about this film. I want to explore that further. So you're thinking that maybe it feels like to you maybe that sometimes the characters are more so mouthpieces for Inuritu in the writers as opposed to characters with own thoughts themselves. You, you. I mean, you, that's the perfect way to put it. Like, <laughs> I think the critic uh actor the critic creator mm -hmm. relationship which mm -hmm. is relatively small but it's like relatively small in terms of runtime but definitely like kind of has an outsized role in the story of birdman i want to compare that to another film that has an adversarial critic creator relationship <laughs> ratatouille <laughs> I, I think what's cool about the way ratatouille handles that relationship is in the end it's not like fully like taking a side and like saying like, oh, like critics are like useless and like stupid hacks. And it actually, it finds, even though it's like overall critical of like the like position that Anton Ego, the critic of that film has in society, it finds a role for the critic that ultimately understands why those people exist. And I think Birdman doesn't really do that successfully. It doesn't like, it just comes off fake to me. Like I said before, it like this character just comes off as like a cartoon villain in a film that's supposed to be this like, even though it has these very surreal moments, it's supposed to be grounded at the character level. And I don't think it pulls that off quite well. I completely okay. disagree with grounded. I think this mm -hmm. film lives in, an, in a heightened reality for most of the time. Um, I think that there, I mean, it even comes from him using telekinesis to throw things around the room and I believe that this film is is doing its best. Yes, at sometimes to be like use mouthpieces to kind of explain certain feelings that that the the script is trying to to portray. But because I, I I did notice that that there are a lot of like monologues that mm -hmm. feel like the director is like almost talking to the audience. And I can I and I completely understand why some people can feel like, dude, stop preaching. I just want to watch a movie. But for me. I've found those moments earned because the in-between moments that are so quiet and live with the characters, whether it's, you know, rigging on, on the street, trying to like make his way through the crowd in his underwear, which I found to be a terrific set piece uh, and, or him getting on the roof, people really yelling at him, like, is this for a movie or is this like, are you just like <laughs> crazy or something? Like those moments are so good. That when he starts flying, oh my gosh, the moment where the guy tries to bring him down, it's like, you know where you're going? He goes, yeah. And he just runs and jumps <laughs> off the mm -hmm. Like, those moments are so good to me. I found this film, the, the core of it, 
is being at at war with yourself and mm. your body betraying you there's a moment where he says you know i'm i'm effing disappearing mm. uh which I, I found to be like really striking in the moment where he where he said that um and uh it's like your mind telling you that you're, you're still something that you were even if you don't want to be that version of yourself in the past and that's like battling with what you want to be, what you believe. And I think the film even states that at the beginning, like, did you live your life to be like, was it what you wanted? And I think he just said like, I did, as like the mm -hmm. one small answer. There's something very, very visceral about having simple answers to such complicated questions. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of what the film wanted to do, was that it wanted to show you in a lot of simple ways, these complicated feelings that you can have. Right. No. Yeah. I. I think it's. I think it's really, really well said by both of you. I. I can totally see where Mateo's coming from for sure. I remember while watching, I was thinking, I totally understand how how the script might rub someone the wrong way. Again, it, it's it's a script that's not holding back, and and it's wholly unafraid uh, to say how it feels, but. I also see where Seb is coming from in the sense that there is a kind of, you know, like like you said, heightened realism, a sort of surrealism that maybe allows the film, some may think, to to have the characters behave in a way like that isn't totally grounded. And, and I think it was interesting, you touched on this a little bit, Seb, how uh, on the last podcast we were talking about how uh, Incredibles 2 had so much on its mind, right? But, but it, it failed to kind of slow down and explore some of these thoughts sometimes or or, or maybe take a breath or sometimes right. buckle under the weight of all of it and then we watch this film which had like that could not have more on its mind and that touches <laughs> on, on almost like every aspect of, of life and is just made of ideas but i do feel like it, it succeeded where we thought incredibles 2 failed that i felt like this movie was totally unafraid to take a breath and have a quiet moment and, and i do feel like that ultimately helped the uh the ideas ultimately cement with the viewer stronger. So I, I want to agree. I want to agree with both of you there. I do think the movie is at its worst when it's at its chattiest. Mm. I, oh, those, there's actually a, a specific scene I want to point to. It's a very, it's almost, and I know this film does not have cuts, but it's a very abrupt, like jump forward in time where he's in uh, his like changing room again in that theater. And he's kind of like being, um, He's kind of like being mobbed by like the mm -hmm. press and one one of like the the reporters is like asking him about like uh roland bart and then like they're asking they're also like asking him questions about like if he like injects himself with like his own semen or something like that they're like like i felt like i was just being bombarded by like unfunny joke after unfunny joke <laughs> and I, I just, I wanted to get out of that room. I wanted to get out of that room. I I, I felt like Regan Thompson in that moment. I, I did not <laughs> want to be around those people. The movie was trying to do to you. I think that's literally what it, was, it wanted to do to you, is that you're so uncomfortable because these reporters ask, like, the cringiest questions. Maybe, maybe. I, I, I just could not jive, I think, with sometimes how it's trying to, like, have a sense of humor. But the execution, in yeah. those quiet moments, I think it's successful. I actually, my favorite scene in in the film the yeah. one that's like the most like parodied the most iconic the underwear sequence as he's marching through mm -hmm. uh and once once he finally gets to the theater mm -hmm. that moment where he's kind of acting and he's like pointing the finger gun at the audience yeah it felt so authentic to me and mm. i thought it was so brave of the movie to pull away from the stage 
once he gets there and not let him finish the scene. Mm. And just it's it's just instantly starts moving away and he just stays in the hallway. I love that shot. You never yeah. get you never you never get oh, to see dude, yeah. You never get to see him like kind of like have that triumphant moment. Cause that should be his triumph, that 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 moment. And it pulls away. Yeah. And that that is such an inspired choice. I I agree completely. Yeah, the movie does have its moments. I do yeah. I did enjoy it. I wanna I wanna be clear about that. <laughs> right. The movie feels so undeniably alive during scenes like that and that's something i i really appreciate in it i want to touch on something mateo said and that's i in the pregame we mentioned how inaritu was like so adamant that like uh this movie had to have like comedy and absurdism in it or else it, it would greatly greatly suffer and i will say i'm thankful for the presence of the humor in it but there were moments i do think like in terms of like the the writing of like broad humor jokes, it wasn't always the strongest in this movie. I, I felt like the jokes were stronger the more specific they got. Like with the the one actor going like, "I was giving you a range," like stuff like that. Like yeah. that's really funny. But there were there were a couple jokes where like I could just imagine the like the one person in the theater coughing as a response. It's like, oh, like he is a thing for nuns and diapers. <laughs> I was like, oh, like that's not the is that the best joke we had for that. But, but again, I didn't dwell on that too much. I do think, I think the comedic tone does work for the most part for me. And your opinion on the script does maybe largely depend on how maybe self-aware you think Inaritu is and maybe where you think he's coming from. Because like that relationship between, between Riggin and the critic, it's so, okay, this is like a little bit preachy, but I felt that it was simultaneously like self-aware of how yeah. entitled these creatives can be in relation to critics. I felt like it succeeded enough there for me to, you know, not write it off as just like, girl, we hate critics. You know, I, I think the dynamic was interesting enough, but I also understand how it was maybe a little bit of a caricature, you know, for, yeah, for I you think there's, there's a, there's a, what Mateo was feeling was that it was just way too on the nose and yeah, like yeah there's not a much not much subtlety going on versus what i think what they were going for was kind of demonstrating this battle that critics and creatives are almost always at mm -hmm, that yeah. you know creatives feel they're above critics but they're like because they're like you're us but failures let's so you became a critic <laughs> right and i i like demonstrating that even because you're doing this for a general audience in my opinion mm -hmm. you're trying to demonstrate that relationship uh between the two whereas critics they're like they have this feeling of responsibility that they bestowed onto themselves that's the mm -hmm. other uh, other side of it where they're like right. i have to be the savior that protects the people from bad art and you're just mm -hmm. like who who told you to do that <laughs> <laughs> it is it, it it makes it feel like this like eternal like biblical conflict between yeah, creative and, and critic and, and like like it, it really can be so frustrating and and they talk about this in writing too a little bit how like the critic you know risks nothing and they can just take apart this creative who's putting everything on the line but it, it did make me understand and appreciate more you know the kind of like checks and bounds system of the critic to like right. it, it is important for critics to be the objective third party in the room and be like the viewer deserves better you know, not to get like too like broadly philosophical here, but there is so much of the work of great critics is looking at work that has been overlooked and underappreciated sure. and bringing it into the light 
or or like looking at something great and and giving people a deeper appreciation for it. And I think I think in so much of this adversarial media that like kind of like always shows them at odds, you miss out on on what I think is a very like important and and oftentimes like revolutionary role that a critic can play in like making people reevaluate and yeah. and look at something again. And right. um you know, obviously it's not the responsibility of Birdman or any film to explore that, but when you're kind of like treading over this ground again that I think has been tread quite a lot, I think you you kind of maybe you have to try out something new and I don't think it pulled it off. But you know, I don't want to keep like kind of talking about the script. Because there are other things about the movie that are so fascinating. Yeah, no, I was about to say, I was like, and this one little wrinkle is only one aspect of the movie. And, and I feel like that maybe speaks to kind of, again, kind of how like effortlessly the movie shapeshifts a lot of ways through, through the themes or or maybe even stylistically in a way. And it, it was, and it always did in a way that was never really jarring for me. And I felt like it kind of did service to all these different angles of the movie. And I just say this in comparison to Incredibles 2, where we're just like, this thing is overflowing. You know, I, I do think this movie had, had had a better grip on that at least for me i know i'm breaking the objective moderator a, a little bit <laughs> yeah. but um but step any any uh, last quick words before we before we move on I, I think sometimes you may need to over explain or over demonstrate versus trying to like you know force the audience to read between the lines because i think the movie's better off going for it a little bit i think it's mm -hmm. a it's a very in-your-face film i mean they literally throw stuff around with the force and so, so, you know, I don't, you know, you can talk about like what that means, of course, which I still want to eventually, but, you know, it's not trying to like make you wonder, is he really moving that thing with his mind or like yeah. top, top 10 force sensitive users, more powerful than <laughs> Vader. Number seven, Riggan Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> he beat Anakin Skywalker. Riggan confirmed to appear in Ahsoka. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Moving on, I want to say there were there were three quotes I thought about a lot while watching this movie, and we'll mm -hmm. start with one of them. The first, the first was from Quentin Tarantino in the year 2022, just last year, because this echoes something Mateo touched on a little bit in the pregame. He said, "Quote: Part of the Marvelization of Hollywood is you have all these actors who became famous playing these characters, but they're not movie stars, right? Captain America is the star. Thor is the star." I'm not the first person to say that. I think that's been said a zillion times, but it's these franchise characters that become a star. And no one like no one really wants to see these people play any other role, right? I think this movie back in 2014, you know, like uh, almost a full decade before this quote, I do think it kind of perfectly captures the purgatory of being permanently associated with one part of your career or one thing yeah. that you did. Or one part yeah. of your life that you can't escape. He even has the line. He's like, "Can we get Woody Harrelson?" He's like, "He's doing Hunger Games." Like, "Can we give it? Can we get Michael Fassbender?" He's like, "He's doing the prequel to the X Men prequel, <laughs> like that." And like, "Can we get Jeremy Renner?" Like, they they even got Renner in a cape, the Herlock. They put him in a cape too. I wrote that line down. I wrote that line down. <laughs> that was a good line. They even put it's him in a cape. Yeah. Shaded RDJ. I was like, what I the world? So that leads me to say, this movie was like totally unafraid to date itself right like yeah. this, this movie like doubles down on its release here you know between the social media 
aspects of it all the pop culture references and when those first started in the movie i had this pit in my stomach like oh no like this is i i how is this gonna age but but I, my opinion shifted on that a, a little bit in the movie so i wanted to see where you guys lied on on the 2014-ness of it all there are some of them that are that are very bad like uh the, I, I can't remember what two characters it was but they were like saying like Oh, like what a disaster it would have been if we had had a child. And then they said, like, we would have raised Justin Bieber. Because I guess like <laughs> being Justin Bieber was like the worst human being possible in 2014. I thought that was a funny line. <laughs> um, I, I do think it's interesting because I came in thinking about how it was going to like kind of be a meta commentary on the MCU. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I think on like a macro scale. It actually doesn't walk away with that many insights about the like Marvel superhero, like big movie industry, which is, I think, part of the reason why is just because it's not focused on that element of filmmaking. It's focused on like, you know, kind of like a smaller, more niche theater community. Yeah. But I think it's what I, the, the one like element I think it really touched on is the most like personal level which is like Riggan Thompson's relation with the character. I think the exploration of how audiences perceive him is pretty small compared to his relationship with the character and I guess maybe the temptation that he has to go back to that character and he thinks it would be so easy to just put the cape back on and you know cash in and make another one of these and then mm -hmm. the other's like another side of him that says, no, I want to establish myself as like a true creative with this play that I, I thought that was a very interesting personal conflict, but it's a personal conflict that is not so much timely as it is kind of, it's kind of like a timeless conflict. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily commenting. Like, I think the commentary doesn't really, it doesn't feel like it like hit a specific target just because it's such a general thing, which is not a problem. Yeah, it's not necessarily tackling like superhero movies in 2014. It, it, more so just the idea of, you know, having... Uh, yeah, of being defined by one role, of, of being defined by one thing and wanting to break out of it. And just the form that takes in 2014 is superhero, you know, but in, in other years it could have been something else. Yeah, that's fair. I wanted to bring up the fact that well, it's, it's also interesting in a meta, meta contextual way of Michael Keaton's career, like put on Cape one more time and he just did Batman in the Flash where he's just like That's one true. more time and it completely yeah. bombed. I, I, I thought that the film is going for a much more universal theme of identity than people give it credit for maybe that they're, you have something that you love that you're very passionate for and other people either they, they'll, they'll believe in you and tell you this is what you should should be doing and then yet you still don't believe it in yourself and you're like wrestling with the two sides of like i should have done this one thing in the past versus you got to keep pushing or you know, you're a failure and you're doing the angel devil thing what i thought was awesome was that the voice in michael keaton's head is literally like the first thing you hear in the film yet you mm -hmm. don't see the manifestation of Birdman of his other self mm. until like an hour and a half into the film, mm. where which I thought was also a great sequence where he's walking right behind him and he's just basically like 
crap talking to him right behind yeah, right behind yeah. Him. I, I, scene. those sequences are so beautifully directed in my opinion they're effective and he, he knows really how to make you you know jump into into his skin and just feel like it can be really scary being in the disappearing act of uh your own life wow. yeah yeah well well said yeah and, and yeah i mean just to just to put a bow on it you know i i as 2014 specific as it was it was crazy seeing almost a decade later like how much hasn't changed but i also love the way this movie captures this moment in keaton's career right and, and you already touched upon it a little bit but i do want to move into the just the cast now and, and just the acting and, and this brings me to um another of the three quotes that i was <laughs> i was thinking during this movie and this was i don't remember this quote word for word this was um something i heard steven spielberg say um he was talking about shooting actors, right? And he was like, if you shoot them in singles, you know, if you shoot just one actor in a frame, you can kind of craft their performance in the edit. Not every take has to be perfect. You can kind of almost make them look good in, in post. Yeah. But he was like, when you have two more amazing actors, you can just put them all in the frame and to paraphrase, let them cook. Like, <laughs> you know, and like, you don't have to cut back and forth in this movie by default, because it doesn't really have another choice does that very well, you know? And I, and I do think it's a testament to the cast in the way it'll just like, it'll just sit on two actors' faces and just let them talk to each other and act. And I think it does that really well. And so first I wanna talk about just Keaton specifically first. Again, that metatextual layer is so rich. And it, it, this feels like the role that like his entire career was leading towards. And then, which makes, you know, the eventual Oscar loss and repri reprisal of the Batman role only more heartbreaking and bleak. And like, I'm thinking about the line in Birdman when he's like, when <laughs> when the Birdman manifestation's like, we'll make Birdman four, we'll make a billion dollars. And then the flash of like the super bad me when he's like, seven bucks? <laughs> we made like no money. And so, <laughs> and, but which really, I, I like, shouldn't detract from like, I think how spectacular he is in this role. And like, yeah. simply put, like, he has to carry this movie on his back. And I think he does so gracefully. And, and for me, it, it was a true, like, I can't imagine anybody else in this role, you know, for countless reasons, especially with the added layer. I, I think Keaton is, Keaton is the best performance in the, in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and this goes back to the underwear scene, but I like the performance within the performance that he's doing uh, yeah. mm -hmm. as the character in this play. I, I think a cool detail for Inuritu to pull off in a movie that, feels you know so kind of like continuous is to make keaton's performance over time to make riggan thompson's performance over time become to, to start to feel more authentic with each mm -hmm. preview up to the premiere i think that's a cool detail to pull off uh on a just like a technical acting level and a, on a thematic level i think it's it works too i think over time even as his insecurities and uh, his sort of like, like personal failures come to light. I think he is also maybe starting to believe in his work a little bit more, which in a movie that is such a downer and is so, so mean-spirited to, to give him that little victory, I, I really appreciate it because there are other <laughs> elements of the movie that just like, they, they leave you feeling so kind of like flat and deflated. and. I love having that moment of hope that is brought to light by Michael Keaton's performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that there, the, the film explores a really interesting dilemma that actors face, the blending of 
who you are on stage versus who you are in your private life? Like what, how can you draw the line or is it always going to be kind of muddy, like in the sand? I think there's a reason why they chose a beach and even jellyfish as kind of this, this odd little pairing of, you know, the darkest moment in uh, his life that it's all very confusing and it's all very, it's not, you're never sure what is happening to you or what you are. You know, he, he didn't even realize jellyfish were on his back until he was out of the water. And I think mm -hmm. that those kind of moments to me are really interesting. They don't really talk about what he thinks about that moment, but he just explains like, this is something that happened to me and mm -hmm. they leave it at that. So that's where I think the screenplay, there are moments where it shines. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the blending of life between acting, I thought was done mm. really. No, I, yeah. I love that. And, and I love when an actor has to play a character who's playing a character and because yeah. it's not like Regan Thompson is as good of an actor as Michael Keaton, you know, and so he has to gauge. That's something I really, maybe an underappreciated aspect of DiCaprio's performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, as Rick Dalton. He has to like yeah. act as Rick Dalton as, at different points in Dalton's career, which, which I think is just a really fun thing. Um, yeah. But but no, yeah, I, I had a feeling I wrote down, I was like, if there's anything that unites the three of us, it, it'll be Michael Keaton from this movie yeah. that like, that that was like the big handshake emoji from this movie. Um, I do want to talk about Edward Norton, though. I was just he, 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 it is, it is, he is, he is so much fun in this movie. And he just eats up every, every scene he's in. And it made me like, he's been in more stuff lately, but it just made me wish he was in more stuff. But I, I want to throw it to Seb because this is a Seb core character for sure. Like, that. I, well, that's the thing. I thought he wasn't going to be at first. When he sure. the first scene that he was in, I was like, this is too much. Like, I'm getting a headache. Because he was like, <laughs> the, the over explaining and over directing that he was giving to Michael. Yeah. Like, but like that to me, I'm just like, I thought the screenplay was failing his character because it was just like, mm -hmm. it was it didn't feel authentic the way he was bouncing off of Michael. He was just like line, mm. perfect line read after perfect line read after perfect line read. There was nothing that was like, it, it, it felt too clean. And I was like, I kind of love that scene. I'm not going to lie. To me, it's about taste. I just didn't, sure. I wasn't into that character introduction, but every scene afterwards I thought was much more well executed because it, that the other stuff felt more natural and him kind of hating his himself outside of when he's on the stage. I mean, I wrote this down. He called himself basically the Batman of acting where he's like, my real self is on the stage. And, <laughs> and That's funny. I was just like, I, I laughed at that, but I was like, I, but at the same time, I, I can almost understand that mindset that some actors would feel they can't exist in life on like by themselves. So they have, they have to be someone else. And I was like, that's, that's so interesting. And that's what they explore with this character. Yeah, I, I like him. I like uh, I like the performance a lot. But I think uh, I might have like a more powerful version of Seb's opinion, where I do think the on some levels the script kind of fails the character sometimes for me. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I think uh, I think his relationship with uh, Emma Stone. I think those those scenes felt uh, very weak to me. Uh, a little. <laughs> A little cliche mm. like oh like he's burying himself out to her because mm. i don't know because i guess he like sexually like harassed her before like it, it's 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 a very strange uh like dynamic that i did not really feel that compelled by but i think on a comic level 
I, I think he is the he is like the funniest character in the movie. <laughs> sure. Um, right. And I definitely understood why he's there to kind mm-hmm. of be like the upstager to to kind of like keep adding more problems to Regan Thompson's life. Fills that role very well. Mm-hmm. I thought he was a much better foil to Michael than like the best friend character, which I was not a huge fan of. I was I oh, the Galimachus, yeah. Yeah, he was he was not he was the cliche part of the script, I thought, that like I was just every time uh-huh. he was on screen, I was just like every word coming out of this guy's mouth is like some kind of, you know, uh-huh. I don't know. I, like I'm your best friend, right? Yeah. You trust me. What do you want me to do? And I'm just like I just I like I don't I don't like any of these scenes. Or the even the, at the scene at the end where he's just like, "This is what you wanted. We got it." Now. <laughs> I'm just like, "Why? Why are you here? Can we just have like you know, the the family talking here? Talk? I, I don't know." That's that fair. Edward to me is the core of like the the foil that worked. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I I actually I think my favorite parts of the movie are when Keaton and Norton are going back and forth. I think yeah. just like the sheer acting power on screen and oh, just like. The movie is the most alive during that. And like, and frankly, I think anytime Norton, I think, walks on screen, it like, it does like, like uh, there are like kind of sparks flying, especially when, when, when he's with Keaton. In terms of his, his relationship with Emma Stone, it's, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. There, there, those scenes were a little wobbly sometimes. I did like it. I, I did like the function it served, how, because Norton, is so dominating in so many scenes because that's kind of the nature of his character is just so like oppressive. But I, I guess I do like the mechanic that, you know, in the scenes with Stone are the only time like Norton and his character aren't really like occupying the frame the most because it's also when like the character is letting his guard down the most, you know? And, and I think that's like, even if those scenes are a little obvious, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I do think that's a, I don't know, I thought that was a, a, a kind of nice a little beat and shift for the character. Um, and I do th- probably a testament to Norton more than anything else. I feel like he does find the humanity and a character that could have just been like just an ideal of a character. You know, the whole like, oh, like the real me is only on stage. Like it, it just feel more than that, probably just because of Norton. And then just from like a, a bigger picture Oscar sense, like I just want to say between Ethan Hawke in Boyhood and J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, like Norton was probably never going to win for this year. But I think in 70% of other years, I think he I think he wins, you know, like because this is a classic, like loose cannon supporting role that gets you an Oscar, you know, and, and this also would have been his first as well. Like Norton's never won an Oscar either. Backtracking real quick. This is still Keaton's only Oscar nomination ever, which is like this makes it makes it still wow. even like a little more heartbreaking, you know, because I'm sure Norton, I feel like Norton will win eventually, but. But we've already talked about Emma Stone a little bit. It's the last actor I really kind of want to highlight because we talked about her scenes with Norton a little bit. And I want to say in, in, in those first couple scenes with Emma Stone, I was like, oh, Nelly, this is this is a lot of acting. This is this is a lot. Of, and I don't and I don't know which which way it's leaning, you know. But for me, I feel like with Norton's character, I feel like the performative veneers of these characters do fade as the movie goes on and the more they interact with each other. I did appreciate her character and what Emerson was doing more as the movie went on. Like her being able to kind of like hold her own in these scenes with these kind of like, you know, because this was, I, I'm saying this because it was pretty like early in her career too. Like, because this is the movie that kind of launched her into more of a reputation as a prestige actress. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like she really like really holds her own like against all these like, again, again, these like these Keatons and these Nortons and all these things. But yeah, but what do you guys think about her character and that performance? I, I will say like on a, on a broader level i do think that the script 
does a disservice to its to the the movie's female characters like particularly um like Naomi Watts and uh Andrea Riseborough like I felt their characters to kind of like feel almost like manufactured for their dynamic with uh Michael Keaton in a way that like then like when they like kiss that felt like like such a like random like throwaway moment just because we we see so little of like what these characters like actual like interior lives are that like once they throw them together in a scene it it just felt like hot air that's fair to be honest because like there wasn't a lot of build up to that moment it's just something that happens and it's never really addressed again afterwards (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's it's a very i don't know it's a very like throwaway like oh like what's what's like something like edgy we can make them do in the scene right now (laughs) but i i think emma stone is a little bit is 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 somewhat better um i like i like her scenes with her dad really Mm -hmm. the most um just because i i think those like familiar relationships they often feel like they just say because of how those care what those characters like you know beyond the movie history is it's very easy to infer that and then you can kind of put in uh some of your own experience into those uh relationships mm-hmm. and and get more out of them yeah i mean on a on a technical acting level i think she's she's phenomenal again all of these actors are great if there's any problem that i have with their performance i think it's they're being let down by the script not mm. anything to do with how with like their abilities and as an actor or how uh Inyaritu is directing them necessarily yeah, i agree i think she understood her place in a lot of these scenes the way that mm-hmm. either she's she's the one who's in with the power or without the power in a lot of these mm-hmm. scenes very mm-hmm. well and um i think that can be kind of hard for some actors to really stop themselves yeah. almost like they have to be like the one who's stealing the spotlight maybe sometimes right and i think he's very good at understanding what the scene is trying to do yeah, she can hold the light for someone else in the scene. Yeah. Yeah, right. it, it is a good supporting performance for sure. I, I agree. And I just want to say real quick, one thing I did appreciate, and I'm not sure if this is more of a testament to the directing or the acting, or even if it was intentional at all, but I love how in the scenes with like heated exchanges, it, it feels like real life in the sense that you can almost see the gears turning in the characters' heads as they're actively trying to figure out like what to say next you know it, yeah. it's like the the laying down the railroad track in front of them like like the wallace and gromit gift when they're like when, mm-hmm. when the right. train's moving because right. in real life it's not like everyone's like an aaron sorkin character with like a speech in their back pocket just like in the chamber at all times you know and, and it's not in a the actors look like they're trying to remember their lines way of course you know and maybe this wasn't even a conscious decision by any of them but it came for me came through for me in a way that I, know, I just really loved it. And I think helped with the immersive whirlwind nature sure. of, of the movie, you know? Yeah. I really, before we end it here, I, I want to ask about the ending, how we felt about it. Oh, sure. If it kind of landed the movie for you or if it kind of made it feel almost uneasy, because to me, this was a big topic of discussion around the movie at the time when it released. Is like, what did the ending mean? And around this time i like this time around i i still wasn't sure i felt like uneasy about it because uh-huh. you know i don't think it was glorifying suicide but i think it was it was showing that this really extreme act that he did 
was going to live on beyond him and that that's what his daughter was going to remember was this this man that everyone's going to like prop up as like this living legend or this past legend who did something that no one else would even go to the lengths to do over his actual self who he was in real life like that's the person she's going to remember that's how i interpret the ending but mm-hmm. it's still like you know I, I remember at the time people were like oh was he actually flying and i'm like that was the same conversation <laughs> so very very bizarre back in 2014 i think the ending for me was like it, it wasn't like mysterious Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it also didn't leave me with much to think about because I guess like the, the, the way that you interpret it is that either he's like still kind of like in his dream space and he's like imagining mm-hmm. all these things or he's dead and yeah. neither one of those endings was particularly, it is like particularly like, like shocking, but it just kind of feels like a continuation of, of, of where the movie's going, but the one, the one thing that I do appreciate that I do think is a fantastic detail is that when he wakes up in that hospital bed mm-hmm. and you see his face, the mm-hmm. cast that he has over his eyes looks like the Birdman mask. Yeah, that is a yeah. that's Look a phenomenal that detail. Uh, <laughs> the, it, it's the like, movies, the movies. <laughs> you know, like this is kind of like it's kind of like an an inevitable direction for him to go, and it's like he's back in the mask, no <laughs> yeah. matter what he tries. I, uh, and maybe yeah. that motivates like how he reacts to everything else is like he sees the mask on him and he's like wait like all this work and it's just back to square one yeah yeah, uh, yeah. well well said and and, and stuff i i think i think you kind of summarized all my potential thoughts on, on that ending you know it, it is i again back in 2015 i was just like okay like a 15 year old me didn't know what to make of it i was like I got nothing back, back, in, <laughs> back in freshman year of high school or whatever. I, I will say though, do you guys know what the original ending for this movie was? And I think and they, they changed it halfway through filming. No. It was, it, it was like, in inner two was like, we gotta change this, bro. Like, I think they may have filmed and he was embarrassed. Like, he didn't even want to say what it was. The original ending, it was okay. Um, it goes, we went backstage to the halls we've seen the whole time. And we get and we get to this dressing room where liter- literally Johnny Depp would be sitting, looking in the mirror, putting on his Riggin Thompson wig, and then the poster of Pirates of the Caribbean 5 would be in the back. And Jack Sparrow's voice, it would say, what the F are we doing here, mate? And it was going to be the satire of the endless loop that they were in. I guess maybe would have aged well because we did no. get Pirates 5, but like, oh, but Inaritu made the right choice. It's baffling. <laughs> I know. That would have, like, ruined the film for me almost. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's oh, crazy man. dude i'm saying it like and also that's it's a loss is more scenario because i think they summarized the endless loop feeling in just the hospital tape mask yeah. honestly i, I think that I, was more than enough honestly if you end the movie at that moment with the mask it's like oh if that was the, the final shot yeah you, you can probably you could you can end there if you really I, wanted yeah i still like the ending we got but I, yeah I yeah mm-hmm. yeah no that's totally fair no lo- love that um just one, one more quick thing uh, I want to touch on. We've already touched on it a good bit, but um, but just the wonder in general. I, I think we again we all kind of had unanimous praise on that, and I I just want to say I think in the best way possible. I was almost never thinking about it, and I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. Like I was I just couldn't really take my eyes off the actors, you know, and, and I was just. I was engaged in the story enough to not really think about the camera mechanics. Maybe the biggest praise I could give it. And I like how for it being a wonder and the camera being in constant motion, 
it wasn't afraid to just rest on faces, you know, and be like, this, this is just our shot for the next minute, you know? Right. And so, so I just really yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, when I said that the camera was a character, um, mm -hmm. and I, I really meant that in a way that like, it was only doing a service to the film and yes. not ever detracting away or distracting. Like it, mm -hmm. this was such an inspired and great choice and probably the best choice of the movie, in my opinion, because to me, the Warner, th this is my favorite Warner movie. I, I mean, mm -hmm. like, I just, I don't think there's any other, other one that really rivals it for me mm -hmm. because I just, the space feels so lived in. There's moments where you'll, you'll be hearing whispers or talking from off screen. And a lot of it has meaning. I mean, there's just, I, and they're never trying to like overwhelm you. I think there's moving with purpose, but it also mm -hmm. feels natural, handheld, cinematic, long takes and pans. I I just thoroughly enjoy the entire directing and you know visual experience. I will say, and and this is kind of I, I do want to you know kind of tie this back to like maybe why did people why has this movie mm -hmm. kind of like disappeared from the public consciousness? Mm -hmm. I like the Wonder. I, I do understand the criticism that the Wonder is kind of something that gives the movie like that kind of makes the movie pop. Without the Wonder, I think if you peel the Wonder back. Yeah, and, and you just you just make it like a quote unquote normal movie. You shoot it conventionally. I don't think this movie would nearly have any no. any of the reputation that it does today. And Absolutely, I think, you're right. So I do understand. Live and I die by the gimmick. Why this yeah. movie is remembered as a gimmick. Mm -hmm. Sure. I, I even, even with what it does have under the surface, which does exist, I do understand why the film is remembered as a gimmick, and I do understand why it kind of had its moment where you know in in the brains of the average moviegoer it went on hiatus you know that is one thing uh, I, I wanted to ask this in general because we talked about how there have been so many wonders since this film and, and i was like you know now that the wonder is less of a novelty were we still impressed by it and it, it seems like we were it, it seems like it was yeah. it's still really really impressive so i love yeah. that and so and so as we're wrapping up i want to get to um, my third and final quote that, okay. that i thought about during this movie um and I feel like this is, you know, maybe kind of sums up my thoughts uh, as a whole on it. So the first was from Tarantino. The second was from Spielberg. This one, is it from Scorsese? Is it from Brian De Palma? Nope. It's from my buddy Drew. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is something he said, long story short, um, when he was halfway, he was halfway through eating a sandwich. And he said, quote, I keep waiting for the next bite to be bad, but that hasn't happened yet. And that was kind of, <laughs> and that was kind of how I felt watching the movie scene after scene. I was like, I kind of keep waiting for this next scene to be bad and for the movie to fall apart, but it just never really happened for me. You know, like, I I kept waiting to like audibly groan at something, but like, cause it was just like it was so going for it, but then it never really happened. It, it, and even when the film wobbled a little, like even if the movie had like just like a sloppy turnover, it would proceed to dribble back down the court and nail like a 35 footer, you know, like that, yep. that's, that, that, that's kind of how I felt about it, you know, and my, my mind didn't drift once while watching it. I was locked in. And like you said, Zeb, yeah. I was, I was never overwhelmed, at least never in a way that wasn't intended by Inaritu. So, so if yeah. we had to, because the purpose of this podcast is to try, try to find a, a definitive, maybe black and white, you know, less muddled declaration and, and, and kind of, you know, definitive statement for this movie so where you know our opinions are varying a lot but if we had to if we had to give a unanimous verdict for for this film and where it lies right what, what, what would we what would we say i was always figuring that this film was 
pretty properly remembered, to be honest. Everyone, mm. when you bring up Birdman, I think the contentious opinions are almost earned. Like, mm. it's, <laughs> it's so, I, I don't know if my take on this is going to be the best one, but I, I would almost say, like, uh, remembered for the right reasons is, mm. is how I would put it. Maybe it's because of its audacious nature. And because of its DNA, it, it is just inevitably and eternally gray, like the opinions. Now, like it may, maybe, <laughs> like may, maybe it is inescapably gray. It, and maybe that almost is our thesis is that there will always be unsettled discourse on it in a way. Maybe that's just the, the nature of this movie. The, the nature of the film. I like that wow. a lot. I, you know, and it makes me want to dive into more uh, Inyaritu and see. Yeah, I, I want to see how his style plays out in 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 films that are kind of like more not you know westerns. Yeah, yeah. So so I guess that's our takeaway. It's unsettled by nature, unsettled by design. That felt good coming off the lips, you know. That that, that felt pretty good. That was gonna hit. So, so I, I think I think <laughs> I think we did this movie justice. I, I'm I'm again I, I'm really happy that that we rewatched it. Um, I uh, and, and we can cut this if need be. Quick detour. Did either of you watch Bardo in Aritu's most recent movie? No. Uh, no, no, but, but I'm like, this now. Birdman, Birdman, like Bardo has to be Birdman, but like shitty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it sounds like a, if you didn't love Birdman, you will hate Bardo. That's what, <laughs> that's, that's what I've heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's funny. And so, and so yeah, uh, thank you all for listening. I, I think this might be our longest pod yet, but I think... Considering the movie, I think it earns it. There's so much to sift through in this film. As for Inaritu in the future, uh, again, who I won't say when, but maybe expect uh, a Revenant pod at some, at some point in the future. You know, uh, I will say, so maybe get that in the back of your minds. But who knows? I mean, it could be a year from now. Who knows? But but Inaritu is a perfect, uh, just a, is a perfect creative for this type of podcast. And but as for next week for the immediate future, we will be revisiting 2014's Godzilla, directed by Gareth Edwards. A, a, little, a little timeliness for, for the release of, of the one creator. Fame. Of Rogue One fame or for <laughs> non-communicative uh, collaboration with Tony Gilroy on, on Rogue One. <laughs> yeah. uh -oh, yes, group project vibes. Um, but no, so <laughs> Godzilla will, will, will be next week. Thank you all for listening so much and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>